I want to pick up in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. And uh, you should all, I hope, uh, I sent around a little sheet, kind of sent it down both ways. So if you have that, uh, that would be great uh, for um, trying to explain this and, and, and think with uh, you about this. This is a, uh, this verse and the couple of verses that follow are really remarkable verses because it's mentioning, some, it meaning these verses, they're mentioning something that is hinted at throughout the Bible. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, a couple of places in Isaiah, and it's hinted at as the Lord Jesus talks about um, uh, the church and his role as a bridegroom in Matthew 22, for example, Matthew 25, for example. And it is also remarkably developed, or I maybe shouldn't say developed, but stated in the discussion that the Apostle Paul has uh, of the roles in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 32 particularly. So I'd like to uh, just talk a little bit about this because I think it's really quite profound, actually, theologically, as well as what uh, our future, our destiny is as believers. So verse um, 7, remember what has preceded this in chapter 19 are six verses of praise. And I instructed you or encouraged you to think about the three times that the term hallelujah is used. It's used in verse 1, it's used in verse 3, used in verse 4, and then at the end of verse 6. And the reason there is this call to praise God is because of verse 7. Let us, there, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9, and he said to me, he is the angel that's been uh, guiding and talking to John in this chapter, he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, these are the two words of God. So we'll stop there for a minute. So there are two phrases there that are not problematic, but they're a bit difficult because it's imagery, it's figurative, it's metaphorical language. But it's the marriage of the Lamb, and then in verse 9, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if language means anything, they're not exactly the same thing. And so in a little handout that I gave you, which actually is a part of a much larger written project I had of all the major questions in with prophecy, this is one of those. I just uh, cut and pasted it out. So what I'd like you to do is just look with me for a minute. I hope you can see this. There's a lot of light coming in here, but I think you can see it. These two, um, these two phrases, and I perhaps should put these in quotes too, <clears throat> marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Obviously, in any context, the marriage supper or the marriage dinner follows the marriage. So I, that's how we should see it. But let's just think for just a, a couple of seconds. Throughout the New Testament, and actually alluded to in Old Testament prophecy, particularly in the book of Isaiah, is that one, one of the titles or roles, if you will, of the Messiah, of Jesus, is bridegroom. And throughout the New Testament, you see this popping up here and there. 
So Jesus is the bridegroom. Well, if he's the bridegroom, then the next question is, who's his bride? Well, throughout the New Testament, again, is this metaphor, this figurative description that the church is the bride of Christ. And you see here in, in verse uh, nine, 8, she's clothed herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And so that language, it, it, it's again, it's using the language of a wedding, but it's metaphorical, it's figurative. So that language is the language that she is righteous. And that's, that's very clear, that's what he's saying. She's righteous, she's holy, she's pure. How did she become righteous, holy, and pure? <laughs> By the shed blood of Christ in Calvary's cross and the subsequent resurrection that then is applied to the people who make up the church to their lives by faith. And as you know, Romans 6, 1 through 14, many, many, many other places throughout the New Testament, we are positionally righteous, we're positionally holy. And now that the church is in heaven, as this depiction is here in chapter 9, she is righteous, she's holy, she's pure. And so Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride who's holy, righteous, and pure and ready for what? For the marriage. So as I intimate there in that little handout, the marriage of the lamb, <coughs> it would seem reasonable, although I'm not sure I would die for this, but it seems reasonable that that occurs in heaven. Because we're about to read as we get into the next section, verse 11 and following, that the saints in heaven, the church, come back with Jesus. And so the marriage supper of the Lamb then occurs on earth after, subsequent to, the second coming of Christ. So again, I'm not sure I would die for this, but this is just a logical, reasonable way to think through this. Okay? So this... This is, a, um, this is a profound, deep, and very meaningful metaphor, the idea of marriage and marriage supper. Now, I'm, I'm, I have to speak to you with literary language here. There's no other way to unpack this. So have I lost you, or are you with me? So what, what really is going on here? Probably the best word, and I, I just can't think of another word, is the consummation of God's redemptive program. The consummation of God's redemptive program. That everything that the, the scriptures have been talking about and have been developing, and that those themes that have been integrated throughout the Bible and sort of obviously, first of all, and clearly culminating Jesus, because Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the God-man who dies a substitutionary death on the cross and so on, and accomplishes that redemptive plan of God. I mean, there's no other way to see that. That's clearly everything in history is headed toward Christ's death, burial and resurrection. And everything in subsequent history after that is directed toward his second coming. There's the two, well, no matter what else is happening in history, from God's perspective, these are the two most important events in space-time history. The incarnation and death, burial, and resurrection of his son and the second coming of his son. And so what the Bible is doing here in this stuff that's prophesied back in Isaiah and now 
developed in the New Testament around the themes of the bridegroom and the bride is now consummated like a marriage is consummated. That's what's happening here. God's entire redemptive program is consummated in heaven. When Jesus comes back for his church, that the Bible calls the rapture, takes his church to heaven and prepares her for that second coming where triumphantly God will forever triumph over evil, vanquish it from his, uh, his, his, uh, his world. And so therefore, this marriage supper is the celebration of this consummation of God's redemptive program. And it's, it, it is in the Bible, Matthew 22 is a great reference point for that, that this is probably to be understood as a literal banquet. I mean, where we will sit down with Jesus. And he says in Mark chapter 14 that among other things he's going to do there is he will celebrate in person, present with his church, uh, the Lord's table. Whenever I lead communion, I just did it last, last weekend at my church. Whenever I lead communion, I always say communion has a backward look and a forward look. It has a backward look where we remember everything Jesus did for us at Calvary's cross and resurrection. But we look forward to it. He said in Mark 14, when I come back, I will eat again of the fruit of the vine uh, and eat of, of, of the bread with you in my Father's coming kingdom. That's, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's something to sort of be excited about. So I'm trying to do the best I possibly can to unpack these metaphors because this isn't, this isn't to be understood sexually. I, I mean, I don't think that's the point, but... Marriage is a beautiful illustration of God's relationship to the redeemed. That's true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. And so the consummation of God's redemptive work is he, takes, he comes for his church, and this, this consummation of the redemptive program occurs in heaven, and then the celebration of God's kingdom that is in the name of his son and his bride, the bridegroom and the bride, is celebrated on earth. And he comes back, vanquishes evil, sets up his kingdom, and ushers in that wonderful age that we read about chapter 20. Did I lose you or are you with me? Want to talk about it? Yeah. So, so does this suggest then that there's some something that's incomplete about our salvation until this consummation, I don't know what to call it, ceremony or event, or is it just an elevation of the, the, the relationship to a new level or... I chose the word redemption, not salvation, not uh, justification, because the New Testament seems to like to use that word to describe the entire aspect of what God is redeeming us from. For example, uh, it speaks of us getting our resurrected body as part of the final redemptive work of God. It speaks of uh, another example of the uh, salvation of sozo, it's the Greek word there, or soterian, another Greek word, as being the glorification, when we are glorified with Jesus. So, Jim, justification is that declaration of righteousness because we've appropriated Christ's work to our, to our life by faith. But subsequent to that are just a whole bunch of other things, all the 33 things that are promised to you. As well. And one of them is to be consummated with the bridegroom. We are a part of that. And so there's this inextricable husband-wife-like linkage between our Savior and we, his bride. Not sexually, but in this completion of what God's redemptive 
And so the culmination of that as well is that we will rule and reign with Jesus in his coming kingdom, which is an, really another really exciting thought to really kind of imagine and get our arms intellectually, our minds around, what in the world does all that mean? It's just, it's, it's, it is almost beyond our finite temporal comprehension. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, nor has the mind of man conceived all that God has planned for those who love him. Sort of exciting. I know we don't get excited about sort truth, but that's just, I'm just kidding. Question, other questions? None? Does that mean you really understand this? Do you have any questions? That's great. I mean, I didn't think I did that great of a job of explaining this, but okay. Where, where does Armageddon fit in here? Is that That's the, coming up. I see that, but the triumphal procession down, down to mm-hmm. earth is going to be after that. Mm-mm. No? Mm-mm. Well, let me answer it this way. Armageddon is actually a military campaign, which then culminates in that final battle, which we're, we're about to, to read. When the Lord comes back, returns to earth, etc., and, and goes to the Valley of Jezreel, which is where Armageddon is, and there defeats the enemies and throws them into the lake of fire and so on. So that final, um, I don't know the word to use, that final battle of the campaign of Armageddon is, is wrapped around the second coming of Christ. But this is after the, the wedding? Then? I believe so because of just the chronology, well, what seems to be the chronology, the way we understand it, that's why I put it this way, that this consummation occurs in heaven. And then we'll, we'll read about this, uh, for example, in verse 14. It's very clearly referring to the church because it's this description you have in verse 14 is identical to the description in verse 8. This is a church. We come back with Christ. And so um, then, but we come back as his bride as a part of the triumphant procession. Because listen, um, I mean, I know you're listening, but I, I meant it as a point of emphasis. In the Greco-Roman world and among even among Hebrew weddings, it was three stages. There's the, there's the betrothal and promise. Then there's the, um, the command by the father, go get your bride. And then as he gets his bride, there's the consummation of that relationship and then the great processional to the feast. And so that's obviously the imagery that's being used here. The father says to the son, go get your bride, which the way the Bible describes it, go get your church. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about and 1 Corinthians 15 and all those other passages. Then you, have, then you have the consummation of that in heaven, and then you have the victorious processional back to the banquet. And so, I mean, it's just taking that imagery and wrapping it around these seminal events of, of Christ returning. But we return again, as verse 14 makes clear, we, the church, return with Christ triumphantly to defeat the final enemies of Christ and and so on. That's a long answer to your question, John. He and I had that plan. I called (laughs) him, asked me that question. No, not true. But to explain. Okay, are you really seriously with me? I think so. Okay, that's good. I mean, that's good because... 99.999% 99.999% of evangelical Christians don't get this. You are now a part of the lights have been turned on in your mind and you understand it. Because this is, this is wonderful truth. It really is. All right. 
I will infer from your silence that you understand this. So that's I'm going to reach that conclusion. Actually, yeah, I did. That's okay. Absolutely. The, the church, when you say the church is, is all going to meet in heaven, as a result of the rapture, we're part of the church. What's your question? Are, are what? we part of the church? Absolutely. Whether if we're alive, I, this may not even be relevant. But I sit there think: Are we all already in heaven? Are we still on earth? Is it kind of a crazy question? It's not a crazy question. To answer your question, if you, I invite you to turn back to First Thessalonians with me. To First Thessalonians four, because this. Um, I mean, this really answers your question um, in, in, in how this is going to occur. Uh, it doesn't necessarily answer when it's going to occur in the timeline. But now just think, in the way you ask your question, think about what is being said in these verses. Verse 4, 13, first that's 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Remember, sleep is a metaphor for death in the Bible that you may not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Wait, what is that? Bring with him. Those who have died, Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord. Our body goes into the ground, our soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it, goes to be with him. So he is bringing all of those who have died in Christ. From Pentecost until the moment this occurs, every believer from Pentecost, this is the church, from Pentecost till now, comes back with Jesus in this event that's described as a rapture. And he goes on, For we say this to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It doesn't, this isn't Jesus coming back to earth. This is meeting him in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another. So you have two things happening. Number one, those who have died from Pentecost to whenever this event occurs come with Jesus in the air. Those who are presently alive, we wait until the bodies of those who have died meet in the air, soul and body are joined together, then we, who are alive, rise to meet Jesus. That's like a two-stage thing. So that is when we receive, and this is clear then from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 and following, then we receive our resurrected, glorified bodies. And I believe we are to understand we go back to heaven with the Lord and this is what occurs. And then the second coming occurs. The Bible separates these two events. This event, which just read about in 1 Thess 4, and the event we're just beginning to study in chapter 19, his second coming. Because in his second coming, he comes back to earth. In the rapture, he comes in the air. doesn't say he comes to the earth. Okay, I saw another hand, I think. Buddy. Also, I need to refresh your... For confirmation, those of us that are believers, when we pass on, our body, we separate from our body, our That's soul right. goes to heaven. That's right. And, our, and the only thing that's here then is our body. That's body. And mm -hmm. then at the rapture, we, our body is taken up. And joined with our soul. 
Yeah. And, and you received your resurrected body. Mm -hmm. And that's just what we read in First Thessalonians four. Yeah. See, that's why you know the the body is 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 extremely important to the Lord because He's going to resurrect it. I mean that that's important. You know, now for you and me, we're, you and I are old, so our decrepit old body, which hurts when we walk and all that stuff, in the resurrected, we, it won't be that way. You know, which is really, I mean, that's what first First Corinthians fifteen is a wonderful, the longest chapter in the resurrection in the Bible, and it's just describing what our body's going to be like. No more pain, no more tears, no more hurt. I don't have to go to the fitness center every day. I don't, you know, I don't have to watch what I eat. I don't know if those two things are true, but I don't, I don't know that. But uh, anyway, okay. I saw another hand. Right here. Is, does that mean cremation is all right? <laughs> well, um, you know, let, let me. You're about the 973rd person who's asked me that question. I've been asked that question many, many times. It's okay. It's a good question. The Bible does not condemn cremation. The Bible does not give a clear directive, you know, thou shalt not cremate the, cremate the body. It doesn't say that. Now, historically, in terms of the church particularly, historically the church has not generally embraced the idea of cremation. That's one of the reasons for so many Many churches, right next to the church, is a big cemetery. You know, if you, I mean, that's here in Omaha, you see it. But historically, and in Europe, I mean, that's because the church has always looked at it, uh, to treat the body with dignity and respect is to bury it. And secondly, at least historically, cremation of the body has always been, almost always been associated with pagan worship and, and, and pagan sacrifices. But it doesn't have to be that. But, I mean, the Bible just does not condemn it. There's no verse you can find there it's condemned. So my, my counsel is basically this is an area of Christian freedom. If your conscience bothers you on this, then don't do it. And, and, but I think there's freedom there. So I would not condemn it because I don't see it specifically condemned in God's Word. So that's the best I can do on that question. All right. I am really excited that you understand this. <clears throat> Verse 11. This is a great passage. Verse 11 through 16, because this <coughs> is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the other key event. We sometimes call this the second advent, whatever you want to call it. Now, again, I want you to notice the importance of the word and, because you're going to see that again and again. This seems to be wanting us to connect a whole series of events. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. So, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. How many times in the New Testament is Jesus called with the titles faithful and true? I'm not looking for a number, but is this the first time you ever see these as titles of Jesus? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the faithful one. I am the great amen. I mean, over and over, and over one of the you know, very significant cross-reference for this is in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, as he's introducing the church at Laodicea. He says, I am the faithful and true. I'm the amen. I'm the creator. That these are taught. So we know this is Jesus. But it's interesting how it's described here. He is he's on a white horse. Now, whether literally he rides or with this figure, I think it probably literally is any reason why. Contrast that. 
When's the last time you saw Jesus riding an animal? I don't mean you seeing, but I mean in the Bible. When was the last time? As he enters Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, you know, Palm Sunday, one week before Easter. Okay, what's he riding? The foal of a donkey. And in the ancient world, the foal of a donkey was always symbolically representing peace. Symbolically, in the ancient world, a white horse represents what? A conqueror, a, con- a military conqueror. So now Jesus, and he's, as you'll, Zechariah 14 tells us he returns to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is returning this time, not riding the foal of a donkey, a symbol of peace. He's riding a white horse, the symbol. So he is the Messiah warrior. And now I, I'm not being a jingoist here, but that is how we are to understand it. Because as you read what is described here, this is the language of a triumphant conqueror. He is about to mete out the justice of his father as he makes this final war on evil. And it describes him. And in your notes on page 38, I try to flesh out all of the meanings of this description of Jesus. And his eyes are a flame of fire. That's a metaphor. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you know that. It's a metaphor. And his head, upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. So the picture in verse 11 and verse 12 is the conqueror, the sovereign Lord, riding a victorious horse with eyes blazing and all the diadems. And the diadem, there are two words for crown in the New Testament. Diadem is the term of a royal crown. He is wearing the crown of royalty because what is another one of his titles? He's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the image of verse 12, just alone, the image of verse 12 is here is the righteous, perfect conqueror about to vanquish evil and establish righteousness once and for all. And he's had enough. Pardon me? And he's had enough. Yeah. <laughs> he's had, I mean, he's about to crush the rebellion in a final sense. So, I mean, the, the, the la- it's metaphorical, it's figurative, but it's indisputable what is being uh, what is being commuted. And his name, and it, this, is, this is mysterious, his name is an unknown name. It's a unique name. No one knows. What does that mean? We're going to have to wait to find out. Verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. All right, now this, folk, this switches from Jesus as the mighty, righteous warrior king to the next verse, verse 13, the Lamb of God. You've got these two roles that are mixed throughout the Bible. He's the warrior king, the king of kings and lord of lords, but he's also the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. And so the blood and the blood is obviously his blood. And then that name, word of God, Lagos of God, that is all over the New Testament. He is that and that's how it's described in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. He's that perfect revelation of God. He that has seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? You look at me. 
I reveal God. I'm the incarnation of God. That's just all it's saying. So you have these two mixtures. As This is an original thought with me. I borrowed this from somebody else. You put verse 12 and verse 13 together. What do you have? Jesus as the warrior lamb. He's the warrior lamb. That's who he is. It's seemingly two contradictory roles, but they're not. They're complementary roles. And that's how it's depicted. And then verse 14 is really exciting because this is talking about you. I'm getting excited. (laughs) This is talking about you and it's talking about me. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now let your eye go up to verse 8. It were a verse that's clearly describing the church, the bride of Christ, clothes herself in fine linen, bright and clean. What's the description of verse 14? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So we are returning to earth with Jesus. This isn't the rapture. That's already occurred. We've gotten our resurrected, glorified bodies. The marriage supper, the marriage has occurred. The, the redemptive program is consummated. Now we're returning with our warrior lamb, our king our Redeemer, our Savior, our Lord. Many years ago, and my son was, oh, I don't know, I'm going to think he was like 14 maybe, but Joanna and Peggy, this was always a Wednesday night, Joanna and Peggy uh, always went to a wand. Joanna was six years younger than Jonathan. And so dad, he said, Dad, for, for a couple of months, you and I are going to be home. Let's study Revelation together. I, mean, I just about, you really want to study Revelation? So he, Yeah, so we studied Revelation together. Every Wednesday night we have dinner, and we'd spend about 30 minutes, 40 minutes studying. And going through, I mean, when I say studying, that's probably too deep of a word. We read it and talked a little bit about it. So we got to this verse near the end of our study, and he, Jonathan stopped, and he said, Dad, you always told me there aren't any animals in heaven. I mean, did you look at verse 14? <laughs> following him on white horses. And he said, Dad, they're animals, aren't they? So they're coming from heaven, aren't they? And I said, uh, yes, Jonathan. So uh, you've caught me in an error here. I mean, it was like, how do you understand that? Is it figurative or is it literal? There's no reason for it not to be understood as literal. But it was a really interesting question from my 14-year-old son. It showed me two things. One, Whenever I say something, always remember your kids might remember what you said. 90% of the time they won't, but they might. And number two, make sure what you say is truthful. So I, I was caught by my son's inquisitive question. Well, I don't know. I thought that would add a little humor to the tension of this. <laughs> so you have the description of Jesus, the warrior lamb, 12 and 13. We return with him, his church. That's clear from verse 8, similar description. Now, notice verse 15. It's, it's sort of bizarre. It's just the way the language is, because it's metaphorical. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Okay, so, I mean, try to imi- just get an image of this. From his mouth is this sword. So that's obviously, I think, and I wrote about this, because... It is described in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 13, that the word of God is like a sharp, two-edged sword. And so it's helping us to understand, because of the language, he smites the nations, rules them, treads, he is going to mete out the justice, mete out the, the purposes of his Father through his perfect word. 
So it's from his mouth because his word is power. What he says, he speaks things into existence. His word represents power. And that's what you want from a righteous king. Because the language of verse 15, and I wrote this there in the note, is a combination of Isaiah 11, Psalm 2, and Isaiah 63. If you want to summarize in one phrase, Jesus forever crushes the rebellion. The rebellion that started with Satan's rebellion, one-third of the angels joining him, and it comes to earth in Genesis 3, is now ended. And he will set up his rule, which will be a righteous, perfect rule. And his word is always trustworthy, always dependable, always just, always righteous. So he's depicted, <clears throat> excuse me, he's depicted as the warrior king with that kind of authority. The, the sword, it's the word, it's like the word, it's trustworthy, it's dependable. He'll never make a mistake. He'll always be civil, but he'll always be just, he'll always be righteous. That's what his rule will be like. And then in verse 16, to confirm that, his title is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, doesn't that make just a slight chill go up and down your back? Because once and for all, the fundamental question of human history will be settled. What is that question? Who has the right to rule? God or the rebels? Well, it's answered. The kingdom rule of Jesus is now established. And we'll see what he does with that. The very first thing he's going to do is he's going to defeat all his enemies in the plain of Jezreel. Daryl. But we still have the millennium yet to come, the end of which God will release Satan after a thousand years. Mm hmm. And that's one of the questions, why does he do that? What's the purpose of that? So he's proven it, but yet he's going to still... What is, he, what is he proving with that? That's coming up at the end of chapter 20. No matter what, even yeah. in a perfect environment. There's still the capacity to rebel against God. That's right. And that's why God has to remake us completely, which is that redeemed, perfect, resurrected body. And we'll talk about who is it that rebels, where they come from, and all that. Daryl's way ahead of me. He's such a thinker. He's way ahead. He's in the new heaven and new earth already. But anyway. All right. Any questions? So what you have here is a succinct account of the second coming of Christ. His church has come with him. He's, he's got the title. Now, what does he do with that? In verse 17 and following, it's very, it's very succinct. But this is a little more fully developed in Daniel chapter 11 and other places of the Bible. But verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds who fly in the midheavens, Come, assemble for a great supper of God, in order that they meet the flesh of the kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. This, I mean, that's a gruesome command. Because this is going to be the final battle of human history. Where God, in the, in, 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 in the person of Jesus Christ, is going to forever vanquish these enemies. Albeit that small rebellion at the end. 
And what happens in verse 19? I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon his horse and against his army. Now that's Armageddon. That's, I mean, we've seen that several times. We saw it in chapter 11. We saw it in chapter 13. We saw it in chapter 16. This is that final, it's just one verse, but it had been developed earlier. And what does he do? Jesus sees the beast with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So as Jesus vanquishes his enemies in the valley of Jezreel, defeats them, what's the next thing he does? He seizes the beast, the Antichrist, seizes the false prophet, and puts him on trial for 17 months, where they present their case, gives them due process rights. I'm really making that up. No, what does he do? Because of his description in verse 15, he's the perfect, righteous judge, and he throws him into the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire... The lake of fire, the Bible tells us, was created for Satan. In other words, God created it as the, 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 the place of judgment for Satan. So what, what's starting here is all of those who have rejected the grace of God will end up in the lake of fire. But the first inhabitants of it are the Antichrist and the false prophet. They are done, and they're seized in the valley of Jezreel and thrown. Verse 21 and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat upon the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Who are the rest? All of those, all those nations, all those armies, everything that had joined the, uh, the, the camp in the campaign of Armageddon. And as the text told us in verse 19, they are fighting against Christ now. And to fight against the incarnate God is a rather hopeless exercise. And so the Lord, the Lord just destroys them. Uh, no. So, any idea why you know, we're called the army of heaven and we come down, but uh, all the killing is done by the sword that comes out of his mouth? So, why didn't we just wait for him in heaven to come back and go take care of things? And then, oh, what, what's our role there? Do we not? You're asking me a question. I, I don't know if I can really answer that. Um, I, I just don't know. You know, it, it's the it's the completion. First of all, I think it is the completion of the the marriage metaphor, where we're coming back with our bridegroom for the marriage supper, which takes you back to verse nine. And it doesn't specifically say to us. Uh, excuse me, say of us that we will be involved in fighting. It just says we're on the horses, we come back with him as the army of heaven. But maybe we will fight. I, I don't know. The Bible just doesn't tell us. It doesn't explain that. So, I mean, for that particular question, part of your question, I'm not sure I, I have an answer. But why we come back from him, I think, with him is answered in verse 9. We're coming back to then participate in that great marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why we come back with him to earth. Because this, I mean, I think it is clear, and we'll see a little bit more about that, the marriage supper does occur on earth. Could it be also the witness to be witnesses? Yeah, I mean, in in a sense, to be witnesses of what, what the Lord promised throughout the book, that he would 
take, uh, take vengeance on those who had, uh, been, had martyred all the saints during the tribulation and really throughout history. So yet yeah, could be just a witness that what the Lord Jesus said he would do, we see him do it. It's, that's a good way to think about it, too, yeah. Huh? The thought occurs to me that not, not that we can understand God, or, but from, from the perspective of God, why he created us, yes. would he not want his creation who believed in him, loved him, with him? I mean, what do we do when we want to be with our friends? We take them out to dinner. <laughs> I don't know. It's just <laughs> naive thought. No, yeah, but it's it's more than just, and I, I know you realize this, it's more than just taking a friend to dinner. This is the bridegroom celebrating with his bride the consummation of everything God has promised throughout history, that he would redeem. And those who put their faith in him are part of it. That's the, that's the price. You must believe it. If you don't believe it, you will not be part of the redeemed. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a magnificent metaphor, this marriage and marriage supper. It really is. But um, that's, the, the, the aspect of it is that the scriptures do not explain a great deal then about it. Just, that's kind of hard. If you ever go to, I think they still have it. I've been, it hasn't been a, while, been a while since I was out to that store. If you ever go to parables, they used to have, and this is true, in a lot of Christian bookstores, they used to have a photograph. You know, well, you can get them real big or the one I saw about like this. It's a picture of this table that just goes all the way to the horizon. As far as you can see is this table. And that's all it is. So you, I remember the very first time I saw this years ago, I thought, you know, I, I think I know what that is. And the more you stare, it's the only one thing it could be. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's nothing else. If it's, it's biblical, there's nothing else it could be. It's just kind of a really neat. And, of course, at the head of the table will be Jesus. The only problem is... <coughs> where I'm going to be way, you know, 750 miles that way, I may not see Jesus. So I don't quite know how this is going to work out, what it's going to look like. But it's just a magnificent thought of what, uh, of what, what God is promising to us. This is one of the dozens and dozens of promises that God has made to you, that you will return with him and that you will be a part of this great marriage supper, this great banquet where the redemptive themes are celebrated. God has finally completed what he promised he would do. I've heard uh, or read, I can't remember which, I think it was R.C. Sproul talking about uh, these passages and how, how similar the, the visuals are to a triumphant Caesar returning mm-hmm. to Rome, such as being caught up Absolutely. in the air with Jesus, kind of like how the people would leave. Caesar, could not, Caesar would not go back into Rome until the tribute I think it was what it was called until a tribute was called, in which a big parade mm-hmm. where they would almost like parade the prisoners of war. And that's then, right, that's and then, right. And then destroy them at the end of the parade, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, but uh, Caesar would camp outside the city and the people would come out, and then when the <coughs> tribute was announced by the Senate or something like that, Caesar would come in and mm-hmm. all the all the people mm-hmm. uh, would come into the city with Caesar in the right. triumphal. That's, that's exactly what is going on here. The, the challenge with all that is always you're, gonna, you're mixing all these metaphors yeah, yeah. then. So you know, I'm just trying to stick with the, sure. the metaphor of the marriage. But that's exactly right. This is the – to somebody that uh, in the ancient world, uh, the victor, a triumphant king, there was always there were grand processionals, grand celebrations, grand banquets, and that 
that fits with us. That's exact. Jesus is the King of King and Lord of Lord. He's the Lord. All right. Now, how are we doing? Oh, we've got about eight minutes yet. Now, what I want you to observe, are there any other questions about, I mean, since it's ridiculous, but are there any other questions about the second coming of Jesus? I mean, you know, it's like thousands of them. But it's, Well, it seems incredible, uh, incredible that at this time, seeing Christ, that they would battle against him. And, and yet, even today, I guess in our hearts, those who reject Christ yeah. are battling yeah. today, and it will continue. Well, we had seen throughout the study of you know the, the, the judgments, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, how many times did God give the tribulation people an opportunity to repent? Yeah, we saw it time and time again. What did the text say? But they did not repent. So it is, it's the inane idea that you can stand and shake your fist at Almighty God with impunity. And then you, you see him return and you see him march up from the uh, Temple Mount in Jerusalem, march north to the Valley of Jezreel, which isn't really that long of a distance. It's just amazing. They're going to fight. You know, I'd give up. Okay, <laughs> I surrender. But it's you know that's not what's going to happen. It's just a, again the mark. A little bit something Daryl said when he's talking about the release of Satan. Just the mark of human iniquity and human rebellion. It's I don't care what you do or what you say. I do not want to live under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why I, I, I've used that quote many times. C.S. Lewis's great quote in his wonderful book, The Great Divorce, it says, um, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. People will be in hell because they have chosen to reject God and his grace. He doesn't send people there, Lewis says. They've chosen that. And that is the right way to think theologically about that. I want you to observe something about chapter 20. I want you to observe, and this is really, really important. In verse 1, you see the word and. In verse 2, you see the word and. In verse 4, you see the word and. If you look in verse 7, the word and. Verse 9, and. Verse 10, and. Verse 11, and. Now, in grammar, what is the term and called? Conjunction. It's a conjunction, a coordinating conjunction. So if human language means anything, then the language that is being laid out here is we are to connect these. This happens, and this happens, and this happens, and you follow me? So what I am encouraging you to do is think that what we saw in verse 11, and I saw, verse 17, and I saw, verse 20, and I saw, verse 4, verse 21 uh, of verse 20, chapter 20, and I saw, verse 4, and I saw, we are to connect those in a line, linking them as chronological events. You following? So if human language means anything, that's how I think we should do it. So if that's accurate, and I think it is, so Christ comes back, he vanquishes his enemies and throws the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire, etc., etc. What happens next? Verse 20, chapter 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, 
the serpent of old, who is the devil, who's Satan. So you don't have any doubt as to who that is, do you? Every major title of him in the Bible is in that verse. It's Satan, the rebel, chief rebel leading the rebellion against God. He's seized and he's bound for a thousand years. And throw him into the abyss, shut it, sealed it over him, that he should no longer deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. All right, now, I write this in your notes on page 38. One of the major issues of chapter 20 is how should we understand the phrase 1,000 years? It's used six times in this chapter. What are your choices? I either look at thousand years as literally a thousand years, or I look at the phrase a thousand years as figurative, meaning just a long period of time. Now, if it appeared just one time, you might think, well, maybe it just means a long period of time. But the text seems to go out of its way to keep repeating a thousand years, 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 a thousand years. I think I said it six times. So, again, and, and this is, I, I don't mean to, to stack the deck. I'm just trying to use human logic. If human language means anything, then a repeated use of a thousand years should help us to draw the conclusion this means a thousand years. <laughs> okay? Now, this may, you may have never even thought that was an issue. But in biblical studies, it's an issue. And it kind of separates uh, how people look at things. But I just, I tried, that's how I, I was taught to study the Bible. I, I believe that's the best way to study the Bible. Unless you have a reason to understand something figuratively, which, of course, you see a lot in Scripture, but you take it literally. You understand that it's referring to a thousand years. So what the first, after Christ comes back, vanquishes enemies, etc., and throws the beast and all that, the next thing that happens is, what does Christ do with Satan? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, we've seen it three times. The abyss is used three times in the book of Revelation. The abyss is that center where all these demonic hosts come from. So that's where he's locked up. And how long is he locked up? A thousand years. A thousand years. Thank you, Jim. I have 21 men looking at me. What? And then Jim says, I'm glad you said it. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I must have asked the question terribly. I get an A? Yes, you do. I even give you an A+. plus. So, so he, is, he is thrown. But it tells us the purpose of this, so that he may no longer deceive the nations. That takes you back to Genesis 3. The very first thing he does is deceives Adam and Eve. So it's ended. And what happens is, and that's the next verse, and Christ sets up his rule. How long is he going to rule? For a thousand years. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm really almost at I, I don't want to start this. If I get any, and then I'm going to have to start all over again. So I think what I might do is it's a quarter of. If you have time, I would encourage you to read the very bottom of page 38 and through part of page 39, just for your own benefit, because this is a really important question. Why is it so important for Christ to rule for a thousand years on earth? 
Why is that important? Another way of asking the question is, Christ comes back, defeats his enemies, throws the beast and the false prophet and all that, locks up Satan and so on. Why doesn't he just in, usher in the new heaven and new earth, the eternal state? Why the thousand-year reign on earth? Zechariah 14 tells us Jesus rules from Jerusalem. That's the capital of his empire, if you want to put it that way. Why? I give you, I give you some thoughts about that at the top of page 39. If you have time, read that. Just go over it. I want to start with that next week. I want to talk about why is this so important in biblical history? Why at the end do you have this thousand-year reign, which is kind of the front door to the eternal state? Why is that so necessary? Why is it so important? I want to talk about that and, and talk a little bit about the significance of that. And we'll have, I, I want to, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I'll refer you to some other parts of the Bible where that thousand-year reign kingdom is described. A lot of it is in Isaiah. But uh, I think it's a very important biblical question that we should be able to at least answer. All right? And if you really have time, and this is really if you have a luxurious, abundant amount of time, read all of chapter 20. Because a great deal happens in chapter 20. It's bang, 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 bang. Things summarize succinctly. Where other parts of the Bible embellish it and explain it a little more, you have this, but I think, I believe that's the way to look at it. It's a chronological sequence of events that occur. Are you still with me or did I lose you? All right, good. So, um, well, I guess as far as Gump said 21 years ago, that's all I have to say about that today. So, next week we'll continue this. It's great stuff. Thanks for coming. I'm just rather astonished at how many of you keep showing up. So, that's good. Lord, we're grateful that you did not leave us clueless. You explained to us in terms of a framework of what your plan is. And although it's very figurative and very metaphorical, this marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb, that involves each and every one of us. If we placed our faith in Christ, we're part of the church. We're part of that, that bride that's described as clothed in fine linen, bright and clean, because we have been declared righteous. We're righteous in your eyes because of the finished work of Christ that we've applied to our lives by faith. So our, the next, in a sense, in terms of your panoramic view, the next event is you're going to come back for us. We read there in 1 Thessalonians 4, you're going to take us. You're going to take us. We're alive. The dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive are caught up to be with Jesus. And we receive our new glorified resurrected bodies. It's just an incredibly thrilling anticipation of what you promised each and every one of us. Then we're going to come back with you. We'll watch you vanquish your enemies and set up your kingdom. Then this great banquet's going to occur. That's what's been laid out for us as we briefly looked at this today. That is our future. That's our destiny. That's what you've planned as you complete your redemptive work. That's exciting. It gives us hope. It gives us a sense of anticipation of what our future really is. And in a way, it reminds us that what is really happening right now on planet Earth isn't as important as what's going to be happening when Christ returns. So that's really where everything is headed ultimately. So that gives us hope again. Give these men your special enablement, your special grace as they live, as they represent you in their work, in their families, and may they do it well to your glory. So I commit each one of them to you in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.